community beyond, as well as for us here at Wolfson. If you ask people how Wolfson College works, how the place really ticks, sometimes they'll tell you it's all to do with the statutes. For example, it's all to do with statute 1.4, statute 1, section 4, the bit that says we're a democratic college. Or they might say it's all to do with the vision of Isaiah Berlin. Or more recently, a lot of it's to do with Hermione Lee. But sometimes people will launch into complicated stories about all sorts of people and who they knew and what they got exercised about and who they talked to about it. And those people make it so complicated that you really don't want that to be the story. But Ronald Syme made a case for that kind of approach to Roman history. In his classic work, The Roman Revolution, the transition from the Republic to the Empire, is not about the Roman Constitution, it's not really about Augustus, it's not about the Triumvirate, it's about all sorts of people and who they knew and how and what, who they got into cahoots with, about what. For that reason, the book is not an easy read, it's not a book to take to the beach, um, but it's a hugely important work. Simon was really interested in how the Roman world really worked. I'm delighted that this year's Simon lecture is going to be given by somebody who, in some respects, is very different from Ronald Simon. For example, some of his books you really could take to the beach. But he's also interested in how the Roman world really worked, and he's interested in that on a huge scale. Greg Wolfe is Director of the Institute of Classical Studies and Professor of Classics at the University of London. He's interested in the whole history and culture of the Roman Empire and the surrounding areas. For example, what made people feel Roman? How did women participate in civic life? How was it different from men? Did literacy really matter? Did cities matter when most people didn't live in cities? What were libraries all about? And how did the Roman Empire keep going for so long? Greg, we're delighted to welcome you today to speak to us on migration and the metropolis, how ancient Rome stayed great. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. It's a huge honour um, to come and give the Simon Lecture here. Um, and it's a great pleasure as well. In the 90s, I used to come up uh, the road uh, every year to hear, uh, in those days, real greats of Roman history um, perform uh, Simon Lectures in memory of Sir Rondon. Uh, I learned a huge amount, but one particular image sticks in my mind, and that's of um, Geoffrey Rickman. Uh, who I later succeeded as Professor of H. Sister in St Andrews. And uh, Geoffrey was a very gentle soul and, and rather sort of shy. Um, but he began his lecture by, uh, by telling us a story of how early he was apologised for being wearing the second best suit. And the reason was that earlier that day, um, he'd arrived at the college and he'd gone for a swim in Marsden Ferry Pool. And his best suit had been stolen. And he'd had to walk all the way back to Wilson College in his swimming trunks. And so and then he went on to talk about the Mediterranean. And as he took more and more pictures of the sea and the Mediterranean, yeah, there's a little bit of our mind thinking about Geoffrey walking down the swimming trucks. And I can't match that for a Captatia Benevolentiae, so I'm not going to try. Uh, Philemon mentioned Ronald Syme's Roman Revolution. It was actually the only work of ancient history my father finished. Um, looking back, I think what he appreciated was partly the pace of the narrative... Uh, 
his more re- usual recreational reading were thrillers. Uh, but I think he also liked Syme's certainty. Um, so much of what we write, particularly what I write, is based on probabilities. And nowadays, nowadays we constantly draw attention to the gaps and uncertainties in our knowledge. Even as we offer our best guesses, uh, that's responsible um, history writing, but it doesn't make for a ripping yarn. So I must apologise in advance if I don't have Sir Ronald's certitude. Um, and again, to apologise to his shade for a very unsimian lecture tonight, one full of probabilities and guesses, um, although I hope that some of the guesses are reasonably good ones. When I read the Roman Revolution first, I was still at school, I admired it for a different reason. I, hadn't, I wasn't very interested in prosopography, and I studied no ancient history to speak of, but I had studied Greek and Latin, and I loved the way that Simon would occasionally draw on the literature of the Augustan age to summon up a series of national moods while making clear at the same time that these moods were manipulated and manufactured to serve the interest of the powerful, of the pauci. And it was very striking that when, uh, when at a conference at this college organised by Fergus Miller, who's here tonight, um, and Eric Siegel uh, to commemorate Simon's 80th birthday and then later published as Caesar Augustus, uh, the volume included not just works on um, the elites and the epigraphy uh, and the power politics of the reign, but also um, a wonderful piece by Jasper Griffin, who's also here with us, entitled Augustus and the Poets, Kaiser qui cogere posset. And so my Simeon um, act of pietas is to begin uh, with um, a passage of Latin literature, as he often did. Because there's a sense in which my entire paper illustrates just one stanza from Virgil's first eclogue, if eclogues have stanzas, probably not. Um, One shepherd, Titurus, describing to another the city of Rome. And he says, The city they call Rome, Melibus, I did think stupidly was like this town of ours here to which we shepherds normally drive the tender young lambs of our flocks, just as pups are like dogs and kids like mother goats, so I used to compare the great with the small. But Rome has lifted her head as high among other cities as cypress trees are accustomed to among the weeping willows. Now, Virgil wrote this eclogue for a largely urban audience in a period where the city of Rome was expanding faster than ever before. Uh, Simon's successor in the Camden chair... Peter Brunt, considered that the city of Rome doubled in size between the tribunus of Tiberius Gracchus and the consulship of Cicero, and, he did, and that it did so again by the end of Augustus's Principate. That's another guess, but it's a good one that fits with other guesses. And the peak size of the city is now thought by some to be around 800,000 people, uh, some a bit bigger, so maybe 12, uh, 1,200,000, and perhaps fluctuating seasonally as the city filled up um, in the summer, um, when the sailing season brought ships to Portus, and there was casual labouring to be done on the docks and building work and so on. Now, Thomas Habeneck and many others have explored the kind of cultural revolution that happened at the same time um, as the political revolution that Simon was interested in, and as in other periods, um, a period of intense gro- urban growth provides the background for pastoral romanticism, for Virgil's shepherds. Virgil shepherds come out of this urban boom created to provide a a fictional non-urban perspective from which to admire the new city. Now, Titurus's point, uh, and Virgil's, I take it, is that Rome's growth has resulted in a change of state. 
that it's no longer an ordinary city on a slightly grander scale, but something different in kind. And that is, I think, the main point I'm going to try and persuade you of today, that that there's something different about Rome, that scalar growth has led to a qualitative change. My subject then is the difference that scale makes to ancient cities, and especially to megacities, the metropolis that raised themselves above the usual Mediterranean micro-towns like cypresses among weeping willows, and most of all, how this affects Rome. A lot's been written over the last 40 years or so about the growth of the city of Rome, and much of it has used comparative evidence to try and understand it better. I'll do the same, but I'm going to begin by arguing that we've led rather hard on some particular modern analogies. And in doing so, we've got our ancient metropolis wrong. By looking to modern megacities as models, we've maybe made ancient Rome, Alexandria, Antioch and the rest a bit too familiar. And I'm going to argue that ancient metropolis were in some respects not very like the very large cities we know from the early modern period, let alone from the modern period today. In particular, I'm going to try and persuade you to imagine a Rome that was less diverse, was less multicultural, and in a word, less cosmopolitan than the world cities we live in today. And I've drawn some migration studies to make this point. My subject and my approach, I know, is very unsymian. Uh, and in a, and a, a, one final gesture of not being a Saronal Syme, um, I should admit that this lecture is a palinode something I don't think he ever wrote. Now, we do, of course, regularly evoke uh, the term cosmopolitanism to refer to the city of Rome. And one reason we do it, I think, is that Romans quite liked to hear their city described in these terms. You know what someone likes because that's the way people praise them. Um, And so I've picked out two uh, second century examples here, uh, Aristides' speech to Rome and um, Athenaeus' diagnosophist, which both offer up at first sight an image of a multicultural, polyglot, diverse city. Um, Elias Aristides' panegyric offers this image to Antoninus Pius, the image of the empire as a single city, the Oikumene made into a polis, the city of Rome becomes, as it were, the urban centre of a single vast city-state. And Athenaeus offers us Rome as an epitome of the Oikumene, rather like his Dipnosovist could be thought of as an epitome of Greek literature. Discuss. No, don't discuss. Another, is that we, another reason uh, we tend to think of Rome as cosmopolitan is that we can document easily the way that wonders are assembled in the Rome of the emperors. Um, let this one obelisk stand for all the other physical trophies brought from around the empire and assembled, and also perhaps for all those Greek statues that Pliny documents in the natural history, where repeatedly he begins a story of a statue talking about who made it, who is influenced by, and it always ends up, and now you can see it in this portico or in that temple or whatever in Rome. Beasts brought from all over the empire to fight each other. And sometimes with the sort of fanaticism of a five-year-old. What would happen if a Caledonian bear attacked a rhinoceros? Uh, And these kind of spectacles of of Urbis in Orbe being brought together. And of course, the building stones, the coloured marbles, the other coloured stones brought from all over the empire to create these spectacular polychrome monuments in the centre of the city. So much for things. Population, I suggest, is a different matter. 
Now, perhaps no text has been used more often to evoke the cosmopolitanism of the city of Rome than Juvenal's third satire, and particularly the lines in it which attack the Greek city. Here's how it begins. That race most, or not quite begins, but how the particular attack begins. That race most acceptable now to our wealthy Romans, the race I principally want to flee, I'll swiftly reveal. And without embarrassment, my friends, I cannot stand a Rome full of Greeks. Yet few of the dregs are even Greek, for the Syrian Orontes has long since polluted the Tiber, bringing its language, its customs, its pipes, its harp strings. Even their native timbrels are dragged along too. And the girls, forced to offer themselves in the circus, go there if your taste a barbarous whore in a painted veil, and so on and so on. Now these sentiments, put of course not into his own mouth, but in the mouth of his spokesman, person, the shady Umbricius, are just as nasty as those employed by any modern populist. And gosh, we hear a lot of them on the radio at the moment, don't we? Um, we've got everything here. We've got the image of pollution, the contamination of the pure water of the Tiber with dirty water from Syria, the theme of barbarisation. The Greeks aren't really Greeks. Et linguam et mores et cum tibicine cordas evokes the oral chaos of alien music. Not just foreigners, but foreign sex workers. And some of this makes some quite uneasy reading today. And then the awkward concatenation of ancient Roman virtue and ostentatiously foreign custom. Costume, rusticus ile tua summit, treca dipna quirinia, keromatico fert, niceteria collo. And then a catalogue of exotic places of origin, which in their order leaves it ever eastward. It would be easy to go on. Now, passages... This poem and passages from it have been frequently used in later literature. Let's go to Samuel Johnson's Rome in uh, London, in adapting it in 1738. Uh, I've, again, just giving you an uh, extract, but it's a great poem to read. London, the needy villain's general home, the common shore of Paris and of Rome, with eager thirst, by folly or by fate, sucks in the dregs of each corrupted state. Forgive my transports on a theme like this. I cannot bear a French metropolis. Illustrious Edward from the realms of day, the land of heroes and of saints survey, nor hope the British lineaments to trace the rustic grandeur or the surly grace, but lost in thoughtless ease and empty show. To a bow, sense, freedom, piety, refined away of France the mimic and of Spain. Johnson's reception of Juvenal has a particular historical context. Published in 1738, in a period where Rome, uh, where, sorry, where London, was expanding dramatically as a national and imperial capital and becoming a global centre of industry and of trade. With a population reaching about half a million um, at about the time this poem was written, it was the, easily the largest city in Europe. In the aftermath of the Great Fire, many of its monuments have been rebuilt in architectural idioms that we find easy to label classicism, Georgian classicism. Johnson's London makes excellent use of these deliberate and accidental references to ancient Rome to convict the city of his day of ancient vices, particularly a loss of identity and martial vigour, a loss of Britishness. It seems an irony then that 18th century London and all its glory and squalor is now being used, or has been used for about 40 years by ancient historians, much less self-consciously than Samuel Johnson, as a paradigm of urban growth with which to understand what was happening to the city of Rome in the lifetimes of Cicero and of Augustus. 
Underpinning this analogy seems to be a view that the economics and demographics of imperial capitals are much the same in all periods, all empires in this sense being alike. And this is a view that I'm going to suggest we really ought to worry about. Here's London in 1720, straddling out mostly on the North Bank, and bizarrely, you know, hardly any crossing points. Now, all good comparisons begin with definitions. What is a metropolis? Now, the term's been given lots of uses since its original Greek meaning, and often today it seems to refer, be used to refer to cities of more than 100,000 inhabitants. There's quite a lot of these cities today. I'll put a few figures up here. On one recent estimate, there are more than 1,000 cities on the planet with populations of over half a million. So, 1,000 cities the size of Johnson's London. Um, the 2014 revision of the UN report World Population Prospects describes cities of 500,000 or less as relatively small settlements. It doesn't provide figures for agglomerations with less than 300,000 inhabitants. A recently published map shows cities of over 10 million. It'd be a good test to see how many of these you can name, wouldn't it? I couldn't name very many of them. There are nearly 40 at the moment. The, the context is different, of course. The, there are 7.5 billion people on the earth at the moment, and about half of us live in cities. By the end of the city, this century, the figure will probably be around 11 billion, and 75% will live in cities. Population growth is slowing, uh, but it's slowing from a high, high benchmark. It should continue to slow, if, even if there are no global catastrophes. Urbanisation at this scale is here to stay. Now, around the year 200 AD, the population of the world was much smaller, perhaps half a billion. And around a fifth lived in the Roman Empire, but they didn't live in megacities. Metropolis of more than 100,000 were relatively rare in the pre-industrial world. Perhaps only five or six cities in the Mediterranean basin ever got above the level of 100,000. The rarity of really big ancient cities and our much greater knowledge of modern big cities means our understanding is strongly skewed to modernity. Modern metropolis, however, have emerged in quite different circumstances, the ancient world. Modern urbanisation in the last 300 years or so is quite unusual, in historical, well, it's unique in world historical terms. It's taken place in demographic and technological conditions that are completely inappropriate as an analogy for ancient Rome. Uh, not only is the world's population growing at a phenomenal rate, this is quite a scary graph, isn't it? Um, it's... Um, I picked this one out of many available because that's more or less when the first cities appear. Um, maybe there. And then, you know, this is, this is our lifetime. Even within the last 300 years, there have been some significant shifts in the nature of large cities. Brudel, writing at the early modern period, 15th to the 18th centuries in Europe, saw world cities emerging at the heart of capitalist economies. Most had grown by gradual differentiation among a mass of medium-sized cities. The centralisation of emerging states and competition between economic centres led to increased ranking between cities. So world cities are the most of change, powerhouses driving expansion, but they're also emerging out of this background noise of really quite big, medium-sized cities. Today's megacities are not actually very like that. Urbanisation is actually happening fastest um, in the global south. Some of this reflects the pace of the demographic transition, that shift that most societies are undergoing from a regime based on high fertility and high mortality 
to one marked by low fertility and low mortality. Put otherly from a world in which people had large families, in which most of the children didn't survive to adulthood, uh, to a world in which people have small families and their oldest members quite often live to 100. Now that transition between worlds is one which we're firmly on one side of and the Roman Empire firmly on the other. Some of it reflects the effects of state-driven development. Whatever re- the reason, today's megacities grow not in the capitalist centre of the world system, uh, but on the impoverished periphery and in the Far East. And this, this nice graphic shows you not only um, how many people live in cities, which is the headline figure up here, or live in really big cities in other words, but also what the proportion is. And notice this, in Brazil, 85% live in big cities. Um, in the US, 81%. And so, this sort of, if we were doing this for the Roman Empire, we'd be looking at circles which are not only much smaller, but the, heart, the largest figure underneath would be 20% maybe in Egypt, 15%. It's an enormous difference. And here's life expectancy at birth um, to give you another map of how inequality stacks up demographically across the globe at the moment. Ancient and modern urbanisation had different roots. The demographics are clearly different. Demographic terms, antiquity is entirely pre-transition. All ancient societies have large young families in which most of the kids die. Growth was perhaps about demographic growth, perhaps about 0.5% per annum. Significant in the long run, but nothing like our modern experience. If we ask what are the exceptions, what, what, how do we ever get any really big cities here, just look at who, which they are. Rome, Alexandria, Carthage, Antioch. All of them at one point or another, capitals of empires. So we have this world of cypresses among weeping willows. The weeping willows are tiny little cities, a few thousand of them. Um, and the Cypresses are the capitals or former capitals of empires. And there's almost nothing in the middle. That's the really crucial point. Uh, this is uh, the, the famous graph from um, Jan de Vries's classic work, urban, European Urbanisation. What de Vries did was he tracked the growth of every city that had 10,000 or more inhabitants over the three centuries between 1500 and 1800. The total number of cities that fitted this criteria by the end of the period was 379. So nearly 400 cities at some point or other in this early modern period in Europe crossed the 10,000 threshold. The total number... So what de Vries observed was growth right across the network. The small cities got bigger, the big cities got bigger, the middle-sized cities got a bit bigger. Occasionally the line shifts slightly... State centralisation makes it a bit steeper. Economic growth in some areas makes it a bit less steep. Um, but by and large, what you're seeing is an entire urban network growing collectively. Even today, continental Europe remains a world with quite a lot of medium-sized cities, rather than megalopolis. And this is a different story than the one we're now beginning to tell about ancient urbanism. I think one of the biggest revelations I've had looking at um, work done on urbanism in the ancient world, understood much more widely than just the classical, um, is how unusual the Mediterranean is. That the average, most Mediterranean cities were tiny, perhaps two, three, five thousand people. And this is actually smaller than the population of some of the largest agricultural villages that appear in the early ne- Neolithic some 7,000 years ago. 
Neolithic Chetelhuyuk, sometimes called the first town, really a very large village, not much specialisation of buildings, uh, mostly people living in family units, Everything, every house contains in it industry, agriculture, religion, sometimes burials as well. Uh, Neolithic Chetelhuyuk um, had a population of six to 7,000. This is pretty big for a Roman period city. Most ancient Mediterranean cities never got that big. In other words, the urbanisation of the Mediterranean world isn't about growth at all. It's about transformation. Cities change their nature, become more differentiated, acquire monuments, there are steeper gradations of wealth. But it's certainly not the kind of patterns of growth that you get um, in de Vries's chart. Various people have tried to track this. Um, for the, the inventory that Merns Hansen did of Greek city-states, recorded around 800 polis around the Mediterranean in the 4th century BC, rising to about 1,200 in the urban apogee of the ancient world, which is the early 2nd century AD. Hansen estimated that all but a couple of dozen of these cities have populations between 1,000 and 10,000 people. In other words, underneath de Vries's threshold, none of Hansen's cities, almost none, would appear if you did the de Vries calculations for the ancient world. Only 20-odd ever crossed the line for, for Hansen to get larger than 10,000 people. There are currently two projects trying to do the same sort of thing for the Roman period. Uh, uh, here's a nice picture of Merns staring out at you with the certitude that those of us who've worked with Merns knows he has about all his views. Um, I went to a, a, a wonderful conference in Copenhagen. It was about the 11th conference of his series of conferences on the ancient city. And at some point, somebody raised a point and said, no, we can't discuss that. We sorted that out in the 7th conference. Yeah, no going backwards. <laughs> the very strong sense that we just keep going forward and build up this phenomenal body of knowledge, and really through force of character and energy, created this enormous inventory, which you know, any peer reviewer for a search council would decide in advance was completely mad, and has turned out to be fantastically useful. Uh, what about the Roman period? Well, there's two projects trying to do something similar. Um, one of them is based here in Oxford, uh, led by Andrew of Arabia, <laughs> um, as part of the Oxrep project, and the other by Luke de Ligt in Leiden. Uh, the Oxford project is much further advanced. Uh, Andrew's recent survey of Roman urbanism estimated there were just over 1,800 cities in the Roman Empire. You'll correct me afterwards if you've revived the figure. Uh, Luke de Ligt's current project is entitled An Empire of 2,000 Cities, uh, but he was the first to say this is a very round number. Of these cities, uh, Andrew reckons that 1,500 had populations under 5,000, so fitting very much with the Hanson model. About 300 had populations of up to 30,000, just 50, all in the Mediterranean world, and most in Italy um, or in um, the East, had populations of 30,000 plus. And there are six metropolis by my rather arbitrary definition of 100,000 plus. So here we have a carefully documented account of the kind of big picture I've been trying to persuade you of. Um, we can look in a bit more detail if you like, but for, for a moment first, have a look at the, how the total population works out and imagine one of those big circles from the Guardian graphic. Uh, Ten million people living in cities, a tenth of them in one of the cities, Rome. Um, and that's, the, that's how steep the rank size distribution is. Um, so 
to resume some of the high spots from the articles, um, bigger cities, Rome, Alexandria, Carthage, Antioch and Syria, Egyptian, Ptolemais and Memphis. Uh, Egyptian cities are a bit bigger because there's a kind of ecological caging effect uh, from, the, from the Nile Valley, which means that in every period of Egyptian history there's been much denser populations than elsewhere. Uh, no cities in the West above 50k except in Italy. So not in North, apart, well, Carthage would be an exception. Most under, under 30. No non-Mediterranean cities, none at all beyond the literal above 30k. Most of them much smaller. Now there's naturally a very high level of approximation in all calculations of this kind. And for antiquity we don't have anything like the documentary censuses that are used by early modern historians. Uh, We don't have the kind of records on the basis of which most UN figures are composed, although they're a bit shaky when you dig below the headline figures. Um, Calculating the size of any individual urban population um, is a really risky procedure. Uh, So we're going a long way from the certitude of Sir Ronald here. Um, epigraphy very rarely gives us plausible data occupied area of a city is difficult to calculate now we know about all the suburbs and also about the big empty spaces inside cities Um, but even if some of our individual totals are wrong there's no real sign that if we we alter them all by 10% up or down at random you still have the same basic shape to this Um, the, the structure of the ancient urban system is without doubt and the scale of it as well so how did Rome get big? Um, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, Carthage, I said already, these are, these, the larger cities in antiquity are, comprise a list of capitals of ancient empires. For Rome, but for Rome at least, there's a broad consensus about how it gets big. And I'm not really going to dissent from this, apart from pointing out that it's a bit more shaky than it might be. What I'm most interested in is how it stays big. Um, but let's talk briefly about the Republican story. Almost all the models establish links between imperial expansion and the growth of the city of Rome. Um, rural urban migration is attributed by some to push factors, the growth of great estates, the ejection of peasant tenants by slave villas and so on, or push factors, new employment opportunities in the city, the attractions of corn doles, the politicisation of the masses. It's actually surprisingly difficult to get this right, and almost every component of the picture I've just listed uh, is open to legitimate challenge. But a general connection with imperialism, with polarisations of wealth and urban growth, seems absolutely clear. Other ancient megalopolis may have grown in different ways, perhaps through forced synoikism. This seems to be the case of the great cities of of Babylonia and Assyria, uh, where enormous cities are conjured up overnight by fiat, Um, and may also be the case um, for, at a much smaller scale, for some of the big city building we see in the 4th century uh, BC. Um, But Romans didn't have it, but Rome had already become a super city before it had any monarchs to push people around. Although we see energetic responses to urban growth, aqueduct building, street planning, uh, public order legislation, there's no real sign that either the Republican generals or indeed later emperors ever deliberately tried to make Rome bigger by forcing people to live there. Quite the reverse, on occasion they seem to have attempted, always in vain, to disperse the population a little bit. This also agrees, broadly, that expansion couldn't have been due to an increase in fertility. Rome is never going to be a fecundity hotspot. Ancient Rome didn't find another way, a way to escape the iron constraints of the pre-demographic transition. 
It's also widely held that in Rome, morbidity was well above what's normal in antiquity. Poor sanitation, dirty water, high-density residences all created environments that should have promoted uh, the rapid spread of endemic disease, especially given that much of the population was malnourished and perhaps undernourished as well. It's been suggested by Robert Solares and by Walter uh, Scheidel that much of the population um, is suff- also suffers from hyperendemic malaria. That's just everyone catches it. Uh, those who survive uh, being a minority and as new people come in, they're likely to catch it as well. It's certainly true um, that as cities grew up in the Mediterranean basin, in North Syria, in Iran and in China at roughly the same time and became connected through trade and movements of peoples. Uh, one of the effects of this is the spread of epidemic diseases as well as endemic ones. As Yash that isn't here tonight, I can say that these are empires of plague as well as empires of faith. If some or all of this is correct, then ancient Rome should suffer from a really bad case of the urban graveyard effect. That is, deaths per year so outnumber births that the population needs to be constantly replenished to stand still. The only way you can replenish a population is through mass migration. This has been challenged. Saskia Hinn has provided, I think, the strongest argument against it. But I think, by and large, most of us believe that immigration was an important factor in the growth of Rome during the period in which it expands. Our most common point of comparison is worth Keith Hopkins, from whom this nice graph comes. has been with the growth of London in the 18th century, in the time of Samuel Johnson and others. Hopkins saw Roman urban growth as an indirect and unintended effect of, con- of Roman conquest, and a similar models have been developed by Neville Morley, Walter Scheidel, Wim Youngman, and others. As in the case of early modern London, the authorities respond to growth, but they don't stimulate it. Some have suggested that some of the responses, like providing fresh water or more grain, would have attracted other people in. It's very difficult to assess those claims. Now, London and Rome might have... 18th century London and 1st century BC Rome might have faced similar problems, but they didn't derive from the same source. The growth of London in the Georgian period comes mostly from England. About 10% of the population of the country comes to live in the city of London. And mostly they're free labourers, and they're drawn there by employment opportunities. Employment opportunities in construction, particularly in textile production, in other industry, on the docks, in service and so on. Georgian Empire stimulated some of this, but not the way Roman expansion did. Many historians seem to think ancient Rome too attracted immigrants who were voluntaristic fortune seekers. I hope not, because they would have had a horrid time if they had arrived there. Rome simply didn't have the same opportunities to absorb people as did uh, capitalist cities of the early modern period. Rome had, one of the problems is that Rome has, um, had a much smaller wage labour market than any early modern or modern metropolis. The worst casual works we had in the city, presumably when the sailing season starts in May, by about April, by, by June, you begin to get more casual work, unloading ships on the docks. Uh, Building construction probably takes place in the summer as well. Free labour 
is good for this because you don't need it all the year round. But most of the, other, most of the jobs that migrant labourers do today in manufacturing, in hospitality, in retail, in poorly paid domestic work, as wet nurses and as sex workers, are done in Rome largely by slaves. It's very likely there was a seasonal labour market then, but it was marginal to the economy of the city as a whole. Come to Rome looking for a good job, you can't drive a taxi, you can't work in Costa Coffee. Um, and there are other obstacles as well. Rome's source of migrants is particularly mysterious for the imperial period. The supply of dispossessed Italian peasants is presumably dried up. There are, with conquests, with fewer and fewer foreign conquests, fewer prisoners of war. There are not so many disgruntled veterans of civil wars coming home. By contrast with the Republican period, there hasn't been much debate about how Rome stays a super city after imperial expansion slows. If you fill up a city with a million people and you don't do something about topping them up, eventually the urban graveyard effect should just empty it again, shouldn't it? We need to think harder about ancient migrants. Fortunately, a number of people have been doing so, among them Renz Takamer, Cecilia Ricci, Walter Scheidel, Elena Isaiah, and others, all of whose work I'm drawing on um, in the remainder of this paper. The literary testimony with which I began praised or condemned Rome for drawing population from all over the known world. But that image is implausible. Uh, for a start, the ancient world simply didn't have the transport infrastructure to support mass movement of of individuals to the city. The problems are essentially a capacity. There are no great passenger vessels in antiquity of the kind that moved hundreds of people around the globe since the 17th century. If we multiply the, lum- the likely number of voyages made each year uh, by the tiny number of people who could, who could piggyback on each cargo vessel, the total number is very small. I've argued elsewhere um, that the, to- the, the number of people a long-term journey each year in the Roman Empire is probably not much more than 60,000. It's easy to remember, forget long voyages took, how long individual voyages took, even in the middle of the sailing season. There's this wonderful resource some of you will know from Stanford where you calculate out the travel time from Rome. And this is July, the peak of the sailing season, um, and the, the inner circle is, I think, seven days, then the outer one is 14 um, the pit's out 14, 21. So you're looking at a journey from here to there, even at the best time, best time of year for sailing. Um, it's gonna t- you're taking two to three weeks to get from this end to another. Bordel famously once said that em- early the pre-industrial empires are limited by a travel diameter of about six weeks, and the Roman Empire more or less fits that. Only soldiers and slaves had their passages paid for them. Travelling a six-week journey, if you don't have money, is going to be expensive. There's no, also, there's no mechanism for borrowing the cost of your journey up front. Romans had nothing like the indenture system. So you couldn't simply bring a lot of labourers um, from uh, this. It's actually celebrating 100 years since the abolition of indenture in the British Empire um, this, this year. Um, Romans had nothing quite like that. Uh, there are no companies that are of the kind that are able to bring over uh, Chinese workers to build the railroads in North America. Uh, moving very large numbers of, the po- numbers of people was simply beyond the capacity of ancient transport. Mobility in the empire, there was lots of mobility. Male. 
So if I'm right that about 60,000 people a year at most made long sea voyages, uh, that sounds quite a lot, but what that really means is one in a thousand people in the Roman Empire. Rough, rough order of magnitude, total population of the Roman Empire, about one in a thousand uh, made a journey that went beyond the lo- their local area, and many of them came home again. This isn't a world in which there's a lot of long-distance mobility. Connectivity has its limits. Uh, we can test this by looking at funerary epigraphy. Less than 10% of those whose origin is commemorated died very far from home, mostly in the same province they're born. The gender imbalance also marks a key difference with early modern migration. In the early modern period, there's quite a lot of paid labour for women, textile, food production, um, sticking herrings in barrels in the sea case, uh, doing agricultural work and so on. This is, not, this is not something that works in the ancient world. If anything, female labour is even more important in, in migrant labour today than male labour. But most ancient travellers are men. Women moved only with women who with men, women tend to move only with men who own them or with men to whom they're related, and then only at the higher echelon of society. And the bigger the gender imbalance, the less moving people helps your demographic problems. If you move a hundred people into a city but only ten of them are women, it really isn't going to help you address the balance in the long run. Something we else we learn from migration studies is that populations don't move in waves, they move in streams or flows. Migration flows link particular points of origin to particular points of destination. And information goes back and forwards, telling people where are good places to move to. Even particular districts in cities. Typically, migrants, when they move, move to settle near their relatives far away, or at least people from their fellow, their fellow country people. If there's little work or there's no little access to work or conditions are poor, that information goes back along the network and the flow dries up. And that's why modern migration has created um, a pattern of cities in which we have mosaics of populations. There's a lovely map here I've got on the second language in London, first language presumed to be English. What's really interesting here, I think, uh, and of course it's, it's a, this is a crude measure, but it, it shows that... You know, the, Lith- the Lithuanians don't live in the same place as the Latvians. The Bengalis don't live in the same place as the Bangladeshis. And this is, in- this is created entirely by migration flows. The first people who get there provide a base for others to come, or they send a message back saying, don't come here. So the kind of modern patterns of migration generate a pattern in which you get cities which are divided up into districts in which... The food shops sell different food. There are different religious facilities. Different languages are heard on the street. People dress differently. And this is very familiar to us from modern uh, megalopolis, at least in the global north. If the population of Rome is being replenished by migration streams of this kind, by free migrants coming in under their own steam, we ought to expect some of these phenomena to pop up in the metropolis. In fact, we don't. For a long time, David Noy and others catalogued attestations of foreigners in Rome. Nothing like the effects of modern migration flows are visible. Um, Noy concluded that the peak of immigration, which he sees as in the period of Rome's republican growth, not the empire, something in the order of 5% of the population may have been free immigrants. 
and that almost all of them were male. I think his arguments are quite compelling. It's also hard to find parts of the city of Rome distinguished by different religious practices. Here's what London looks like according to the 2011 census. Um, People declare their religion or none. I haven't plotted the huge scatter of Jedi knights in the metropolis. Um, So we just keep the main religions at this point. Um, You'll see, well known, that there are some areas where more people identify as Jewish, more people with Islam. Uh, Christianity is sort of everywhere, but that's, I think, because it's kind of default. Uh, Hinduism, differently, so I'll flick back so you can compare. And if, if Rome had been filled up with this, we ought to find areas with lots of Egyptian stuff. We ought to find Gallic restaurants. Uh, we ought to find Spanish boutiques. And in practice, it's very hard to do so. It's possible to draw out maps of Mithraea and of synagogues. Uh, but most of these are rather small. The largest temples are always Roman in style. They're mostly from in the imperial period. They're mostly built with imperial backing. A wider and wider range of gods are worshipped, but it's difficult to give that wider range of gods to particular ethnic groups. The Isaiah Campenzi was not funded by wealthy immigrants from Egypt. It was funded by the Flavians. Matter Magna was brought in by, in an earlier period uh, by Roman senators, uh, not to satisfy the cultic needs of Anatolian um, shop owners. The re- religious cosmopolitanism of the imperial city was generated by a desire on the part of Rome's rulers to incorporate alien within the city. But this is most marked in the Republic. And as you move into the imperial period, an interest in foreign gods dies down for a long time. You begin to get a very monocultural city. Mithraea synagogues, churches and so on are mostly tiny. There are a few exceptions and most of them are constructed privately. The religious impact of immigrants on the process is quite difficult to see. The religious topography of Rome is more or less entirely Roman. Renz Takama's recent attempt to find migrant quarters in Rome uh, drew a blank. The so-called Syrian sanctuary in the Grove of Farina is, well, for a start, it's not obviously a sanctuary of the Syrian gods. Its excavation record is fairly chaotic. Um, Syrian deities, in fact, worshipped in a space uh, long associated with the ancient cult of Farina. Uh, the association goes back to the same period of the construction of the Temple of Isis in the fields of Mars, only a little before the invention of the Roman cult of Mithras. The Roman cult of Mithras, invented either in Ostia or, or possibly Comagene or in Asia Minor. Mithraea scattered over the city of Rome, but not designed to cater for Persians or Comagenians or anybody else. It's not even been easy to find the Jewish quarter in Rome. During the reign of Gaius, we're told there was an attempt by the Alexandrians to confine Jews within one area of the city. If this is carried out, and imperial authorities are not sympathetic, it left not much of a trace of anything comparable to later European ghettos. Okay, Alexandria, we know archaeologically and epigraphically much less well than the city of Rome. But when we come to Rome, we're really dependent mostly on one reference in Philo's Legatio, referring to Jews resident in large numbers in Trastevere. There is no supporting archaeological evidence. The Jewish catacombs of late antiquity don't mark out a particular quarter or district of the city as more Jewish than others. Mostly our evidence relating to the Jews is scattered across the city. If Takamur is right, then even in Rome there were no ethnic neighbourhoods, then ancient metropolis are really quite different to modern ones.
Now, perhaps this shouldn't surprise us, because for a long time we've got used to the idea that in smaller cities like Pompeii, the rich live side by side with the poor. Perhaps in most Roman cities, people were separated only by social boundaries, by the cordons of slaves or by the activities they engaged in, rather than exclusive neighbourhoods. Mike Smith, an anthropologist and expert in comparative urbanism, has actually asked whether we can really see neighbourhoods in a meaningful developing in any early cities at all. Neighbourhood formation would hardly have been a feature of tiny cities of 2,000 or so. Maybe, maybe even ancient Rome had not much like neighbourhoods, despite the imposed cults of the Compitalia and so on. Now, other factors might have limited the emergence of neighbourhoods in larger cities too. Things that are difficult to do with now are the size of the rental market and the elasticity of property market. Modern migrant communities, um, let's say migrant communities in modern cities, depend heavily on the availability of rented accommodation. We don't have much sense how easy it is to rent accommodation in any particular area of Rome if you want to choose. A second factor enabling neighbourhood formation in large cities today is transport infrastructure within cities. Now, based part of my argument on on the limited capacity of long-distance transport, um, the transport across the empire, between cities. There are also limitations within. Modern populations, urban populations, are partly grown because urban death rates no longer exceed urban birth rates. But some other things have made this growth possible. The world's largest city in 2014 was Tokyo, with an estimated 38 million people in it. Perhaps more than half the total population of the Roman Empire at its peak. Modern populations can do this, um, could not be concentrated so tightly if it wasn't for the capacity of urban infrastructure to distribute water and waste, food and power, and mitigate the, inf- the increased risk of flooding, fire and epidemics you get from dense populations. Improved infrastructure has more subtle effects too. It's now possible... by quite some distance. So people can live in one area and travel somewhere else to work, uh, manufacturing, government, education and so on, within cities. Even in the 19th century, the wealthy usually had to accommodate their domestic servants in their own houses. This is much rarer today. It's only really in the 20th century it's been possible to allow this development of residential areas so far from the areas in which people worked. It's impossible to imagine the city of Rome escaping the urban graveyard trap without the help of immigrants, and yet it looks increasingly difficult to imagine that anything like modern kinds of migration solved the problem. We find little evidence of cultural or religious cosmopolitanism, no signs of migrant quarters, no signs of migrant flows. The absence of a large wage labour market and of good transport between or within cities pose huge problems to economic migrants. So how do we solve this? Let's go back to juvenile. Now, a lot of people have made bad mistakes treating juvenile as if he's offering gritty social reportage or the line of Hunter S. Thompson and the others. And Ray Lawrence and others have warned us against this very fiercely. Um, Juvenile isn't, isn't telling us what Rome is like. Indeed, he's not even saying what he thinks it's like. He's put it in the mouth of a spokesperson. But sometimes we've overread Juvenile, putting into this assumptions about how cities work that come from modern experience, not from ancient probabilities. 
If we read satire through a bit more closely, it's quite difficult to find a portrait of a city of Rome divided into ethnic quarters. Umbricus's complaint isn't the modern one, that foreigners are excluding the free-born poor from honest labour and from access to the amenities paid for by their taxes. I take it that's the, the central line of much modern populism. Now, for a start, Romans very rarely describe the poor as honest. Um, the, the Romans paid few, little in the way of taxes, and they, when they did pay tax, they didn't get much back in the way of amenities. That entire rhetorical structure doesn't work at all for antiquity. Umbricius isn't worried about the displacement, about the loss of Britishness, or, or its Roman equivalent. Umbricius's aliens are not objectionable um, because they set up territories in the urban peripheries. They're not encroaching the city from the outside. They're gr- taking over the city from the inside. They've colonised existing institutions and manoeuvred themselves into positions at the core of Roman society. They're, the Greeks have become clients... They've become advisors, even masters, quick-witted of shameless audacity, ready of speech, more lit than is theirs, the rhetorician. They're they're social chameleons. Say what you want them to be, they'll bring you in one person, and so it goes on. They've become the viscera magnarum domum dominique futuri, the internal organs of the great houses and the future owners of the great houses. The wrath is growing up from the centre, not at the edge. It's from the the head, not the feet. The image is one of parasites taking over a host, not of pockets of foreigners in the heart of empire. The complaint is the cry of a native Roman of middle rank who is being supplanted by those who can play his own role better than he can. Now there's one... This leaves us, in fact, only one kind of demographic flow that can stem Rome's hemorrhage of population, uh, the flow of slaves. Walter Seidel has recently argued that many migrants did come to Rome in chains. He's not the only one to have done so. Dim Yongman argued the same case some years ago. The evidence for numbers is poor, and of course we're dealing again in probabilities. Um, but, it's, but this is the most plausible understanding of how, these, how the city taken over or filled up um, from outside without free-wage-labour migrants. How can we approach this? Well, there's hazardous parametric models. Just for a bit of fun, let's imagine that senatorial and equestrian orders together kept 2,000 households in the city. Fairly A few more nights. And suppose each city had 300 slaves. Each house has 300 slaves, annexed slaves in its immediate orbit. And if you do that sum, you end up part without any free poor, we haven't counted the 50,000 odd soldiers and paramilitaries around the city, nor the size of the Familia Caesaris, and we haven't taken into account that summer population of casual labourers who presumably came down from the Abruzzi, worked like dogs through the summer months, and then went back and enjoyed the money and the calm and the better, the better health up on the hills later. So that's one route. Then there's Sherlock Holmes's method of elimination if we exclude a local population boom, significant flows of freeborn fortune hunters, then what remains, however improbable, in this case, a vast flow of slaves keeping the metropolis going must be the case. If Scheidel is right that Rome did need a constant flow of migrants, but that they mostly came as free labourers seeking employment, 
not, not of free labour seeking employment, but rather as slaves in chains, this might explain some of the ways in which I've tried to sketch out Rome being a rather peculiar metropolis, an alien megacity, at least compared to those of early modern Europe or the global north or indeed the global south today. For a start, it offers an explanation for the relative cultural homogeneity of the imperial city. Slaves pour into the large households and they pour into other occupations as well. Those who did best, surviving and increasing their position within the large households, and then some at least being manumitted and released after 20 years or so, well, by that stage, have been thoroughly acculturated. And it's been well known for a long time, from the studies of Palzanka and others, that freed men epigraphy is like nothing so much as a smaller version of the epigraphy, uh, the funerary epigraphy of the great houses. Great house culture doesn't trickle down to the free poor. It spills out through the libertine offshoots of the great houses. Most, of course, didn't live long enough to make that difference. But those who did spoke Latin, the lingua frangua of aristocratic households. They brought with them no new cuisines, no new hairstyles, no new styles of costume, uh, no particular habits or excitements, and probably not much in the way of new gods. And so Rome doesn't have an exciting Spanish quarter, or seedy Dacian district, um, or African restaurants. I have found, in my long research on this topic, only one reference to a Gallic restaurant in Rome, and that is Nastrix the Gladiator. I rest my case. <laughs> my conclusion is that we should be a bit more careful before assuming that ancient metropolis look like anything that we see in the world today, or even that they look very like the growing cities of Europe in the late Middle Ages and the early modern period. We've often attempted to interpret Rome as a, with a kind of cosmopolitan that we picked up from the growth of Mumbai, or the growth of Toronto in the 19th century, Melbourne, San Francisco, New York, as your world city of choice. Perhaps they're a bit more like monocultural metropolis of the third world, cities like Lusaka. Or perhaps they're unlike any cities that exist in the world today. The organisers of a recent workshop began with one of those statements you put on the call for papers by saying, ancient metropolis were characterised by a density of exchange, a speed of interaction, a plurality of religious practices and groups, a violence of critique and boundary drawing, as well as economic opportunities and medical dangers unknown to rural spaces. Perhaps that is entirely wrong. Perhaps they've got that just as wrong as Titirus did when he used to think that Rome was just another city. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>